If you have a Bible, find 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. This is the sixth sermon in our series going through the, the letter of 1 Peter. And for this series of messages, we've, we've given the title, Living in Exile. And the reason we've done that is because of both what's going on with us as a church and what's going on in this letter. This letter was written to a group of churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Western Turkey. And they were living in an environment that was not comfortable with Christianity. So they were facing significant social pressure to back off and get in step with, with certain values that the Greco-Roman world of the time had, but Christianity didn't share. And this is helpful for us who are Christians living in America today, because if you are a Christian in America today, things are changing. We're, we're having to learn how to navigate a world that those of us who grew up in America, that we've not had to navigate in the past. There was a time where Christians in America took it for granted that they lived in a Christian country. In fact, for quite a while, in many parts of the U.S., unless you were obviously Jewish or Muslim or some other definite religion, it was assumed that you were more or less a Christian. But now, all of that is being swept away. And in many neighborhoods, many workplaces, in many families and in many schools, if you are trying to really be a Christian, you're beginning to stand out in some quarters of America, such as art or academia or journalism, for example. If you try to publicly live out a distinctively Christian faith, you can attract scorn, criticism, even discrimination. In other words, Christians in the Western world are in the process of rejoining the mainstream. This is what it was like from the beginning. This is what it's like for probably the majority of Christians in the world today. In China, for example, or in many officially Muslim countries. And so, as Christians living in America... We have to unlearn habits, ways of, re of interacting with the wider society. Because many of us, if you grew up as a Christian, you were raised by people who knew how to interact with society based upon a different relationship between society and Christianity than is growing and beginning to exist in America today. And so one of our deep habits, our deep needs, is to unlearn certain ways that worked and learn new ways 
of interacting with society. And, and, and at the heart of this, I think, is that we've got to learn in a, in a way that we've not had to learn before if you're a Christian. Christians have to learn how to tread a fine line that avoids, on the one hand, sinking without trace into the surrounding culture and avoids, on the other hand, adopting a holier-than-thou, standoffish attitude towards society. See, we've got to learn how to walk this fine line that avoids both assimilation and this arrogant posture over against. And this is a, this is a challenging place to try to live. It requires great wisdom and great discernment. And it requires us to go back to parts of the Bible that haven't been very popular for quite a while in America because that is what they're all about, one of those being First Peter. Now, for this challenge, this challenge of how do we avoid assimilation on the one hand and arrogance on the other hand, our passage this week, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, it draws our attention to a particular quality of character that we need to grow and develop if we're going to be if we're going to live lives faithful to Christ in a potentially hostile environment. Look with me at verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and humility. Now, what you need to see is that 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12, it's the conclusion to what we started last week. So last week, in chapter 2, verses 11, all the way to chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says, look, when you live in a hostile environment, here's how you need to relate to a hostile government, to a hostile family situation, to a hostile work situation. And it was very difficult. <laughs> he calls us to gentle subjugation. Subjugation has not normally been used in a positive way in America. And we saw this last week. We saw that it is massively countercultural. It is very difficult. And what he does then at the end of writing about all of that is he says, now if you want to have any chance at all of acting like Christ in places of hostility... He pulls back in these verses and says, here's a character, here's the character trait required to actually respond to hostility with that kind of gentle subjugation. All right, so do you see the flow? He goes from how we need to behave in these complex, very demanding situations to talking about in this passage what kind of character can actually behave like that. And so what he does in in, in Chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, as he names this character, but in verse 8, so 8 through 12, these verses are a paragraph. And verse 8 is like a paragraph in junior high. First sentence is the thesis. <laughs> he, he identifies his theme in the very first sentence. He comes out and he names a certain quality of character that is so important for Christians living or working in an environment where, where you feel a low-grade menace toward the Christian perspective. And what is the character 
that is necessary for this moment we live in, in a word, it's the character of love. But not just any type of love. He describes a cross-shaped love. That's what these five adjectives in verse 8 do. So you know there are things in life that are easier to describe than define? So what he does is he doesn't define love. He doesn't define a cross-shaped love. He, des he describes it. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these five adjectives. And what you need to imagine is that Peter is, is looking at cross-shaped love and he gives one, one adjective. Then he shifts perspectives and he gives another one and another one and another one. He gives five of these and you'll notice as we go through that they overlap with each other. That they kind of play off of each other. All right, here we go. Let's see what the cross-shaped love kind of character is that can actually pull off the way of living in a hostile environment that's necessary for faithfulness to Christ. Number one, he says, it is marked by unity of mind. Some Bibles translate this quality like-mindedness. Now, I'm just going to warn you up front. This was not so difficult for them. I mean, it was hard for them, but it is way harder for us. And so some of you who, who kind of are accustomed to getting challenged and offended at the end of the sermon, we're going to front load it today. All right. So here, um, he, he actually saves the hardest one for their environment for the end, but it's just we live in a different culture, a different society. Now, here's the deal. Like-mindedness, he puts as a quality of cross-shaped love. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. Would you have automatically said that? If somebody said to you, what does love that looks like the cross look like in practice? Would you have said like-mindedness? Probably not. I don't know any American that would have come up with that. But all over the New Testament, this is essential. Paul, Paul goes all over um, sharing the gospel, starting churches, and writing letters back to those churches. And the two things he's always going on about in his letters... Or be holy and be like-minded. Have unity. He, the, these, these are fundamental essentials to a cross-shaped love. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 2, Paul wrote to the church that was in Philippi. And apparently there were some people in the church who were caught in the spiral of intense disagreement with each other. And he writes, Philippians 4 verse 2, I entreat, I beg Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, how would you like, if you were arguing with somebody, for it to be put into a letter that becomes scripture, and 2,000 years later, people are still talking about you, how you can't get along with someone? Can you imagine? Like, this is, a, no way. He says, I beg these two women, would you agree in the Lord for goodness sake? In Romans, Paul wrote in chapter 15, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement that's what it takes to actually have like-mindedness, endurance, and encouragement. Grant you to live in such harmony. It's the same word here, this like-mindedness. With one another in accord with Jesus Christ. And this is all over. Now, what does it mean for a church to have unity of mind? It means we are willing to conform our own personal goals and needs and expectations, and get this, ideas to the larger whole. 
You know, the little kid sitting down because mom said, sit down, you're in time out. And he said, well, I'm sitting on the inside, outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. Adults act like that too. They're just a little more genteel in their presentation of it. He says, no, that won't do. You not only have to be together as a church and saying, okay, we'll go the same direction. You, actually, you have to actually submit your ideas to the, to the group. This is hard for Americans, right? I mean, how many of us raise our children that when they deeply disagree with their friends, how many of us call our children to like-mindedness with their friends as an act of love? Or how many of us settle for our children's outward behavior without challenging them? How many of us, when our children, when they feel like they're being treated unjustly by a teacher, we raise them to stand up for their ideas? And their rights. Oh, you have to do what your teacher says, but you don't have to agree with her. Like there's a thousand ways that we raise each other as if the Revolutionary War was still going on. As if, if, as if, if the greatest virtue of being a, a, a mature person is the, willing, the willingness to go against your community's ideas. I mean, this is, this is the plot turn of most Disney movies, right? Of, of so many of our stories is that having the guts to stand up for what you believe. The problem is, we definitely need to be like that when it comes to being a church on the orthodox core of belief and behavior. But outside of that, there's a thousand decisions churches, this is a letter to a church, churches have to make where we're called to submit our ideas into a like-mindedness. And this is a quality of cross-shaped love. Now clearly, like I said, in the New Testament, if a church is going into a place of belief when it comes to orthodox beliefs or behavior, the core, that we shouldn't do that with. But outside of that, we're called to yield our minds. And that that's a form of love. Now, I, I, I don't think this is a way we're accustomed to thinking about love. This is, this is about submitting mentally, not just physically. It's about a, deferentially, a deferential way of seeing things from the other point of view. All right, number two. Second characteristic, as he's looking and he's describing what cross-shaped love is, the second thing he says is sympathy. can also be translated compassion. Um, this means that we not only discipline our ideas into submission, but we also discipline ourselves to act mercifully toward those in need. But there's something else in this word that we need to pick up on. I mean, we're, the, the idea of compassion, the word he uses here in the culture where Peter was writing this letter, it's a form of compassion typically used in family settings. And in particular, think of this word, this compassion, as the type of compassion that a mother has for a baby in a healthy situation. 
See, because sometimes we use the, the idea of sympathy or compassion as pity. And pity can be condescending. But a healthy, compassionate mother love for a child, you never would think of that as condescending. That's a different kind. And, and it's that kind of compassion that, that he's using here. In other words, we need to look at each other when we fall into needy moments of life, not with a condescending kind of charity kind of pity like a project, but we need to learn to look at each other the way a mother compassionately right, looks at a child. It's not condescending at all. So you see, part of what he's done here is that suddenly he's entered a new type of language game. In this phrase, in this word, he now is beginning to talk in terms of family. We are to develop the disciplined habit of seeing one another as family. To be a Christian means you belong to God. You've been born into his family. And this makes the church of the incarnation a family. Kyle and I have the same father. And we have the same big brother. And we have to learn to look at each other in the ways that healthy families look at each other. Peter's telling the Christians in Asia Minor, you have kinship obligations to one another that are expected of biological kin. That's how you act in a church. Think of a mother's compassionate behavior toward her children, and that is a fundamental quality of a cross-shaped love. It's not the whole quality. There's more to it than that, right? There's more postures a mom has toward a baby than that kind of compassion. That You can't reduce it to that, but that's part of it. Thirdly, brotherly love. Now, notice again, remember I said, these are like, uh, he's coming at the same thing. The thing is cross-shaped love, and he's coming at it with these different adjectives that they kind of, they're kind of shade over into each other. Here he says, now it's not, now, here he says, look, don't just think about each other the way a mother thinks about each other, but think about each other the way brothers in a mature relationship, not in what you remember from when you were 14 years old, but in a mature relationship, the way brothers look at each other. So once again, we're being told that in a church, people have to learn to treat each other with the mutual affection that makes sense in a nuclear family. Now this comes up throughout the letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Okay, so we, we have this brotherly love toward one another. Chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Now here, he takes brotherly love as so fundamental to a church that he actually turns that adjective into a noun, brotherhood. And even though that sounds creepy and cultish to me, like the brotherhood, I'm like, oh dear Betsy, let's not put First Church of the Brotherhood. Can you imagine? Um, it, it, it cre it's creepy today. But what he's done, think about what he's done. He's taken this adjective about brotherly love and he's made it into a noun and he calls the church that. That's how, that's how fundamental it is to a church. And then chapter 5, verse 9. Notice what he does there. Resist him, talking about the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There he does. He uses it again, that we have to be so deeply committed to this way of acting that we could actually be called this. 
And then we get the, that odd verse that creeps some of us out and thrills every 14-year-old boy. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. You know, I think that keeps some teenagers in the church. Just the thought that one day they can actually do that to somebody. <laughs> Not that I would know from any teenager boys in my house these days. Um, don't tell them I told you all that. Do, but look what he's done. He's, he's taken a behavior appropriate to a nuclear family. And he said, do that behavior in the church. Do you see what he's done? He said, this is, at the, this is fundamental to being a church. Now, we have a problem with this. We, <laughs> we need to be careful with this because in our society, I think the word brotherly love, when it, when it comes across our ears, the emphasis falls on love instead of brother. And as a result, we misunderstand this to be talking about affection instead of resolution. See, we think that affection rises spontaneously. So we should feel a certain way. That's not what he's talking about. Um, I'm raising teenage boys. And uh, this isn't a natural thing. This is a thing we're working with them to resolve. To commit themselves to. So when he says here that we should have brotherly love, he's not saying you should feel it. He's saying you should choose it. You should choose to, to have the affection for one another that mature brothers express toward one another. This is hard for us. Number four, the fourth quality of this cross-shaped love that is necessary for us if we are going to walk the fine line uh, between we're not going to become arrogant towards society, but we're also not going to just fall away into nameless assimilation. A fourth quality of the cross-shaped love that's required to do that is tender-heartedness. Tender-heartedness. Now, what we need to keep in mind with this call to be tender-hearted is that it's expected of everybody. And this is challenging because we've been raised in a society that lets people off the hook for being straight talkers. You hear this, right? They say, well, you know, um, yeah, uh, Janelle is just gentle. That's just the way she was raised. But I was just raised in a family that we just, we, we said what we meant and we meant what we said. And the Bible calls that sin. Not appellation. You can't use that excuse. You can't say because of temperament or family of origin issues or victim issues. It doesn't, everyone has to pursue tenderheartedness. And so look, there are some of you that this comes easy. Well, just chalk it up because something else is going to come hard. So it's nice to get away with something, right? But for those of us for whom this is not natural, it's not temperamental, it's not, so, it's not where we came from, tough. Cross-shaped love is tender-hearted. There is no excuse. There's no out. You have to pursue this. You have to develop this. No matter how hard it is for you. You have been given the Holy Spirit to work on these new habits that are necessary to living out cross-shaped love. So tender-heartedness doesn't come natural to you. You have the Holy Spirit. Work on it. 
Draw down on the Spirit's power. Number five. As he keeps trying to describe cross-shaped love, he, he finishes with the one that was the most difficult for his hearers. Humility. Humility. See, he, in, in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, it's very different than our culture. Uh, moderation was valued and humility was seen as weakness. We live in exactly the opposite <laughs> culture um, where humility is seen as strength and moderation is seen as weakness. So the, the best analogy I know of is imagine um, professional sports. Um, so they lived in a culture that was highly competitive and deeply stratified. That's how professional sports are. So can you imagine if um, when a great athlete dunks over an opponent and the opponent falls down, does he say, oh, oh, are you okay? No, he says, your mama in your face, I'm better than you, right? <laughs> um, or when you make the touchdown, right? So think about in the way, in fact, what, what if bonuses were based on humility in the NFL? Like, whoever displays greatness with humility gets an extra bonus at the end of the year, right? That's not how it works, right? You don't get a highlight reel, and you don't get a fatter paycheck. Okay, now we allow that. We allow that. That was how their culture as a whole worked. It was competitive and stratified. It was an honor-shame culture. And the closest thing we have in America to an honor-shame culture is professional sports. Now, what he's doing here is he's taking humility, which was looked at as a very negative thing. In fact, it was a public smear campaign against you if you had it. Um, and he calls them to it. This is hard for us. But it's hard for us for a very different reason than it was hard for its first audience. It was hard for them because they lived in an honor-shame culture. The reason it's hard for us is we live in a self-esteem culture. We live in a culture that's addicted to self-esteem. Here, here's what I'm saying. Modern American society has this ubiquitous idea that people misbehave because they lack self-esteem. For example, it's common to think that the reason a husband beats his wife or the reason people are criminals or the reason there is drug addiction is because that person has too low a view of themselves. They need dignity. And this view is so deeply rooted. It is, it per, it's pervasive in our education system that giving stars boosts self-esteem and leads people, carrot instead of stick, into good behavior. It's in our education system. It's in our, our, our mental models for parenting. It's in our justice system. It's in sociology. And one of the reasons this perspective is so popular today is because it's so attractive. I mean, who doesn't want low self-esteem to be the reason they're mean? Instead of the reason they're mean is because they're jerks. Who wouldn't prefer victimhood to guilt? See, that's what self-esteem does. It shifts the source of the problem to something that's sociological instead of moral. 
You see, in the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior, I don't have to make any moral judgments about myself or society. All I have to do is support people and build them up. But humility is different than self-esteem. C.S. Lewis is very helpful on this. Uh, he was a Christian in England in, in the second half of the 20th century. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And he makes this brilliant observation about what Christian humility is. He says, when you meet a truly humble person, somebody who's really humble, you won't come away thinking, I just met a humble person. Because the humble person is not the person who's always self-deflective. What he means is, a guy makes a, an incredible shot, in, a great feat of athleticism, and you say, that was incredible. He's saying, the humble person is not going to say, oh, no, no, no. It, it, it. Or you congratulate somebody about something remarkable they've done, a sacrifice they've made or something. He said, the humble person isn't the self-deflective person. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not that. He said, actually, self-deflective people are self-obsessive people, just like arrogant people. It's just the flip side of it. But what they both share in common is self. A radical drunkenness on self. But a truly humble person, Lewis makes this point, that when you meet a really humble person and you come away from that conversation, you're not thinking about them. You're not thinking how humble they must be. You come away thinking about yourself because humble people have this capacity to no longer think about themselves but to think about you. They're not thinking more of themselves like the arrogant person or less of themselves like the pridefully humble person. They're actually thinking of themselves less. You see, when you're around a person who lacks humility, whether it's in the form of an inferiority complex or an arrogance, when you're around that person, there's always three people in the room. You and them having a conversation and them thinking about what you're thinking about what they're telling you. So they always bring two people to a conversation. You and themselves. And themselves is always the other person in the room. And so when you leave that kind of person, they've made all these connections to their experiences and who they are and how they think, whether they do that verbally or internally. To be humble is not to be self-hating or to be self-loving. It's to be self-forgetful. You just don't think about yourself. And Lewis, he says, here's the test for humility. You want to know if you're a humble person? Here's the test. The humble person is not hurt particularly badly by criticism. Criticism doesn't devastate them. They don't stay up at night thinking about the criticism you gave them. It doesn't bother them. Why? It goes like this, I think. You have this identity inside of you. And if God is the one who gives that to you, if the fact that I have been made a child of God, I belong to God, that's what gives me worth. That's what gives me value. 
Remember, this has been going on all through the letter. Where does your identity come from? If your identity comes from God, that God gives you worth, God gives you value, then when you do something really good and succeed, that doesn't make you any better. Because success has no highway to identity. There's no traffic. Or if you do something really, really bad and really, really mess up, that doesn't deflate you because your identity is not out there. It's not in successes and it's not in failures. Your identity is profoundly rooted in the fact that you're the child of God. And so success doesn't make you any better. And failure doesn't make you any worse. And the person who gets inflated by success or deflated by criticism is the person who's trying to make their identity in this thing that's out there, in other people's approval. And you know these people when you're around them. When you're around these people in super sophisticated ways, they're always trolling, right? They're always trying to get you to affirm them. Janelle's got this theory that when you give somebody a compliment, if they are like, no, 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 and they self-deprecate, what they're really saying is more, 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 more. That self-deprecating people are people who are just trying to get you to affirm them more. She's right. I mean, in super sophisticated ways, we do this all the time. And cross, a cross-shaped love is humble. It doesn't play that game. All right, now let's pull back and let's remember our context. Peter's identifying a certain quality of character that is crucial for Christians living and working in an environment where you feel a low-grade menace to the Christian perspective. And what is the character that is necessary for this kind of situation. It's love, but not just any kind of love, cross-shaped love, defined in these five kind of ways. Now, here's what he's going to do. This is really fascinating. In chapter 2, the stuff we looked at last week, he said, okay, living in a hostile world looks like gentle subjugation, and he did all those complicated things last week. Then in this week's paragraph, he says, in order to do that, you have to have this kind of character. And then next week, what we're going to see him do is, he's going to say, you need to develop this kind of character if you're going to move out into the world with this kind of behavior. And here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you. What he's saying is, you develop cross-shaped love in the church. The church is the school for this. So that when the world treats you, when a hostile society treats you in a painful way, you've learned in school, church is school, you've learned here how to be tenderhearted and compassionate and like and how to submit your ideas and all this kind of you've learned here how to act that way so that when you move out into the world and it happens, you can respond that way. The church is the school for love. These new habits of heart and life have to be learned in the comparatively safe environment of the church itself so that they can be practiced and applied out in society. But think about how all the times when we don't get our way in church, we want to pull back and find a church that we can agree with. Or, or when, when somebody has a deep need that's so hard, we, don't, we just want to look away from it. It's so hard to look at. Think about all the ways we, we disenroll ourselves from the school of love, the church, when this is actually the place where we're learning the thing we need if we're going to live in a faithful life out in the world. That's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see that, that there, this is the school of love. The second thing I want you to see is that after he does this in verse 8, in verses 9 through 12, he applies it. 
And he says, a cross-shaped love, the frontline battle, the primary place where you have to learn to do this and put this into practice in verses 9 to 12 is in your speech. Your speech. Your speech manifests if you have cross-shaped love, and it is the place where you exhibit and practice cross-shaped love. Look, look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For the, Look, all those are about what you say with your words. Verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, keep his tongue from evil. He's talking about your speech. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. How? He's talking about through your words. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And we saw this in what Jesus said. Jesus said in our gospel reading that out of your heart you speak. And in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 it says, above all else guard your heart. And the very next verse says, be careful how you speak. All through the Bible Your speech is the front lines of your character. So that's what takes me back to that thing I said earlier, where we've been taught to use this excuse, oh, I just wasn't raised that way, or I'm, I'm I'm a straightforward person. And we let ourselves off the hook for an evil thing, which is not speaking with righteousness, with kindness, with compassion. And we say, oh, because I'm Appalachian, or oh, because I have this personality type, or that personality type, or I was raised in this particular family, that I can talk like this. But talking is the first place he goes to. So do you see his flow of discussion? We've got these really complicated situations in life that we have to learn how to act with gentle subjugation. But to do that, we have to enroll in the church, the school of love, where we learn how to have a cross-shaped love. And then it's in the church, in the way we talk to each other, that it reveals if we have cross-shaped love. In our families, the way we talk. And then as we move out into the world, that's the way we demonstrate this cross-shaped love. Let's pray.